The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 26, 2022. On Saturday, November 19th, a gunman opened fire in an LGBT nightclub in Colorado Springs, killing five and injuring 17 others. The gunman was subdued and arrested, and now local prosecutors are considering charging him with bias-motivated crimes, which are generally referred to as hate crimes. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from March 2021. In the episode, Quinta Jurassic sat down with Jeff Asher, a crime analyst and co-founder of AH Datalytics, to discuss the government's collection of data on hate crimes. They spoke about the patchwork system used by the FBI to collect the data, and what other factors might explain why the data is so unreliable. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 30th, 2021. Anti-Asian violence in the United States seems to be on the rise. On March 16th, a shooter killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women, at several Atlanta businesses. Across the country, Asian Americans have shared stories of attacks and harassment, some of which involved racist language in connection with the coronavirus pandemic. Yet there's very little data available that could help journalists and policymakers understand this apparent trend. To understand why, I spoke with Jeff Asher, a crime analyst and the co-founder of AH Datalytics, who recently wrote for Lawfare on why there's so little reliable data on anti-Asian violence, or on any other kind of hate crime. Jeff explained the patchwork system by which the FBI currently collects data on hate crimes, what other factors might explain why the data is so unreliable, and how improved data could help guide the response to anti-Asian attacks. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 30th. Why is government hate crimes data so terrible? So we asked you on because in the wake of what appears to be a rise in violence against Asians and Asian Americans in the United States, there's been a lot of reporting about whether or not we can really know whether there has been a rise in these hate crimes looking at the data. What data is available to track this violence and what data isn't available? Well, I'll start with the second question first. The data that is not available is the data that would allow us to say definitively, yes or no, there has been a rise in anti-Asian 
hate crimes over the last, what, year with a sort of ability to tell, did it rise in, in March 2020? Is it still at that elevated level? Is it rising even more in 2021? All of these questions that we, we think should be easily answerable, we just we don't have the data beyond sort of the anecdote and a couple of little places that seem to be suggestive of changes. The data that we do have is largely the FBI's Uniform Crime Report hate crimes data. And I, I try to communicate crime and criminal justice data professionally. And I feel like half of the challenge, which I'm sure is the same with, with lots of different fields, half of the challenge is really just telling people, well, the data doesn't really say what you think it says. And the data is kind of crappy. And this is especially true with the hate crimes data. Typically, what the FBI does is there's 18,000 different law enforcement agencies across the country that are enrolled in what's known as the Uniform Crime Report. About 16,000 or so report data every year to the FBI in one of seven categories. And the FBI takes that data and let's say in a given year, they get 90% of agencies that report crime data. Well, then they take the 10% of agencies that didn't report or didn't report a full years of crime data and they estimate what those numbers would be. And so when the FBI says there were 16,250 murders last year, they don't actually know that. They're estimating that number based on what has been reported and what they think is sort of still outstanding that wasn't reported, but that actually occurred. The, the same process happens with hate crimes data, where there's something like 15,000 agencies that are enrolled in the FBI's hate crimes program. And so every year they're supposed to report but the FBI just regurgitates those numbers. So the reality is that a much smaller portion of agencies actually report data in terms of hate crime data relative to what actually reports crimes data. And so what we get is basically the number of agencies that reported data in a given year and the amount of data that they reported. We don't actually get a, a good estimate of what the national crime numbers are in any year. And this is especially problematic because you know, murder is defined very specifically. Aggravated assault is defined very specifically. Hate crimes are kind of up to the state and the individual agency to decide what they are. And so it makes it very difficult to know, did hate crimes go up nationally because there was better reporting in a given year? because more actual hate crimes occurred in a given year, because agencies changed how they defined hate crimes in a given year, or was it all three of those? Um, so it, it makes it very difficult to say why trends are happening. There's so much there that I want to dig into, but before before we start getting into the nitty gritty, of a few questions. So first off, I mean, do you feel like that is widely understood or is your sense that people have a perception that hate crimes data is better than it actually is? No, I, I think people don't think about crime data and sort of the, the nitty gritty, as you say. And it's it's the reason that every year when the FBI releases its hate crimes data, I have to tweet that, you know, hey, just because this happened does not mean that there was an increase or a decrease in hate crimes. It just means there was an increase and decrease in reported hate crimes. Um, and I think that when I was going through the, the piece that I, that I did for Lawfare, that Every time I, I use the word hate crimes, I had to put the word reported in front of it when you're talking about a trend because people don't understand how the sausage is made and it makes it impossible to, to really communicate that we don't really know much about this. So you've, you've set the question up for me, so I'm going to put it very bluntly. 
Why is the hate crimes data so terrible compared to other crime data? You hinted that part of it has to do with a sort of ambiguity in how hate crime is defined. But what else is going on there? Is it just that hate crimes are inherently squishy as a category? Like, what's the problem? Yeah, it's it's squishy as a category. It's new. The FBI or agencies have been reporting data to the FBI since 1929. Hate crimes data didn't start until the early 1990s. So it's not something that agencies necessarily are used to. And it it sort of adds to their plates in a way that's kind of squishy. It's not something that they inherently can say yes or no, something was a hate crime. And so it just, it adds a lot of ambiguity there in a way that other crimes tend not to. And I'm sure there's other reasons as well. You know, there's agencies that don't want to see hate crimes, agencies that uh, there was an issue in Louisiana where they were trying to add anti-police crimes as as hate crimes. And, you know, that that became a major issue in the legislative session recently um, because agencies would rather see anti-police hate crimes rather than anti-Black or anti-Asian hate crimes. I'm sure there's more reasons for why it's difficult. Uh, I think that the, the newness and the uncertainty about it are probably the primary drivers. Out of curiosity, what ended up happening with the anti-police hate crimes? Did that end up being reported or no? I believe it did make it through. I don't know how many times it's been implemented, but I know there was one high profile incident where a guy that was being arrested spat on an officer and they tried to to, uh, put the anti-police hate crime charge on there and it it became a big hubbub and the charge did not go through, but it, it sort of showed how it's really challenging, I think, to accurately report hate crimes against victimized communities versus applying this law to to do it however you see fit or to see yourself under under attack. So the I think the question of, you know, how do I identify what is a hate crime is a obviously an interesting and difficult one and there's been a lot of reporting recently in this apparent wave of anti-Asian violence about how difficult it can be. The New York Times had a story recently on a story about a, a Chinese man who was stabbed in the back by a stranger in New York City. Um, and there was a lot of anger in the Asian community in New York because prosecutors didn't charge the case as a hate crime, but as an attempted murder, saying they didn't have enough evidence that the attacker was acting out of racism. So should we understand this sort of issue of how do we identify a hate crime to prosecute as separate from the issue of how do we identify a hate crime in the reporting process for data? Is there an overlap there or are they totally separate? They really should be totally separate, largely because they're the types of crimes that are rarely going to get solved. The vast majority of hate crimes are things like vandalisms and simple assaults that one, are badly underreported to the police. And when they're reported to the police, they're rarely getting solved. They're not like murderers that have 60 or 70 or 80% clearance rates in a lot of cities. And so I think that we tend to view the, the, the prosecution of the crime as sort of the ultimate judgment of whether or not the crime occurred. But when we're talking about the hate crimes data that's being reported to the FBI, this is just the stuff that's being reported to the police departments. And then you have the additional step of does the prosecutor that then, if they make an arrest in the case, do they then treat it as a hate crime, which which I think is a different discussion um, because then you're talking about the evidence gathered by the police 
and the willingness of prosecutors to prosecute certain crimes, I think that we can be a little more open in what defines a hate crime. And we're just talking about the data that's reported to the police because there they just have to make a judgment call about whether or not it, it, it whether or not they believe it was a hate crime um, versus the prosecutor that actually has to get a jury and a, or a judge to say, yes, we agree. And so I think that there's different standards there. And when we're talking about measuring these trends, we really only care about the standard that's being set by the data being reported by the agencies. So let's talk about the this question of what is reported, because as you discuss in your piece, that's a, a real point uh, that sort of leads to a lot of the ambiguity around the data. You talked about the story of Kane Ma, who's a former basketball player at the University of North Carolina, who posted on Facebook after the Atlanta shooting about how he was attacked in 2019 pretty brutally by someone who shouted an anti-Asian slur at him. But then you note that the data shows that no such incident was reported to the FBI at UNC during that period. So, and to be clear, you know, there, there's no doubt that the attack happened. The data just doesn't show up. So what does this story tell us about the reliability of hate crimes data and where the reporting process can fall through? For me as a data nerd, it was neat to have, and obviously it's terrible that he went through this and it's a, it's a horrific crime, but it, it was while I was working on this piece to have him just talk about this incident and be able to compare that to the incident level data immediately and just sort of have that as an example to prove the point that we're, we're expecting that these incidents are badly underreported. One would expect an aggravated assault like that where somebody ends up in the hospital has a, a higher likelihood of being reported than most hate crimes. But it's it's really difficult to say, okay, is this something that he reported to the police there's a high likelihood of that. And then the police have to then make the determination that it was a hate crime. And I think that the challenge there is that, and I don't know anything about Chapel Hill Police Department and the the degree to which they tend to report hate crimes or don't tend to report hate crimes. They do report a handful of hate crimes, but really the data that we do have doesn't capture why something like this would not have been reported. And so it, it's hard to say, you know, it's, it's really hard to say in a lot of detail why this, this doesn't make it into the data that we have, because we, you can't prove why something wasn't reported. But I think it's really illust- illustrative of here's a, a UNC basketball player in Chapel Hill getting brutally attacked, and it's not being properly recorded. And so you can imagine this over and over again, thousands upon thousands of times across the country each year. And it, it's it's really illustrative of the bigger picture that we have major issues with, with just for whatever reason, these are not being reported. And you you mentioned the, the type of assault that was carried out on Ma, which was an aggravated assault, and how you write in the piece about how the types of violence or harassment that constitute hate crimes can sometimes determine whether or not something is reported. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, simple assaults where someone is attacked, but not brutally. So like basically where they're, they're attacked, but they're not sent to the hospital or they're not attacked with a weapon. They're the, basically a fight. You know, two guys, one guy beats up another guy and, and he has a, a shiner in the morning, but no, no big deal. That would be a simple assault. Those make up 21% of all, of all hate crimes that have been reported by the FBI since 2010. That's the third most common category with 
destruction and, and vandalism, almost 30% of those, uh, those make up almost 30% of all hate crimes reported nationally since 2010. And intimidation makes up another 25% of all hate crimes reported nationally. So vandalism is one that we know is badly underreported. We have no idea because the FBI doesn't even count crime data on vandalism. So we have no idea how underreported it is, but it's the most common hate crime. And so it's got to be enormously underreported. Simple assaults, we can actually put a number on it. The Bureau of Justice Statistics every year does something called the NCVS, the National Crime Victimization Survey. And so if you think of UCR, where the FBI reports the actual hard data that's reported by agencies as one half of the crime picture, the NCVS is the other half of the crime picture. And NCVS is where they go around basically assuming that a handful of crimes or a large percentage of crimes are not reported. And they conduct a survey to estimate what is the rate of crime based on non-reporting. And so they look at every crime, every major crime type except for murder, because we're assuming that, you know, dead bodies are hard to hide and those are almost all reported. And so they put a number behind the percentage of crimes that are not reported. And so they actually break it down between simple assaults and aggravated assaults and aggravated involve a weapon or intent to injure or, or serious harm being done to another person. And we know from their data that around 55 to 60% of all simple assaults each year are not reported to the FBI versus about 35 to 40% of aggravated assaults. So uh, with simple assaults being the third most common and the most common violent hate crime out there, uh, it stands to reason that if we already have the problems of agencies underreporting, the fact that the crime that's happening the most often is one of the types of crimes that doesn't even make it to the agency as much only sort of acts as a booster of the underreporting problem that we already have with hate crimes. And is there an obvious reason in your mind why simple assaults are, are not reported? Is it just because someone makes the call that, you know, like it's, it's not worth dragging the cops into this? Like what, what is happening there? Well, there's all sorts of reasons. A lot of times for immigrants or people with, you know, that, that might be not wanting to come to the attention of authorities they might fear deportation or something like that. For uh, attacks on sexual orientation, people may not want to be outed, and there might be fear of that. They might come from cultures that don't trust the police or come from countries where the, the police are crooked, I guess, more often than you see here. They they may just feel ashamed about it. You know, they, they may just, if they something horrible is, is uh, spray painted on their garage, they may just want to paint over it and go on with their lives and not think about it. So there's all sorts of reasons that, that that could be. It's really hard to say why in, in any one circumstance. But, you know, if you look at any group that could be the uh, victim of a hate crime, there's, there's all sorts of, of either logistical lifestyle reasons or just sort of shame and disinterest in, in thinking about it. I mean, there's also the question of language barriers, right? One of the things that really jumped out in the reporting around Atlanta was that the Korean language outlets were sort of able to do a lot of reporting on the ground 
that English language outlets weren't because uh, many of the victims and their their families were Korean and perhaps didn't speak English fluently. Does that same problem perhaps come up when a victim is considering whether to report to the police? Yeah, absolutely. And especially when uh, it's going against sort of the ethnicity or the race of the person or the the cultural hate crimes, you know, the anti-Asian hate crimes only make up like two and a half percent of all reported hate crimes. But I could imagine a, a significant language barrier, especially in places that don't have large communities of, that speak Korean or that speak Mandarin or speak whatever language the, the victim speaks. And so uh, I could certainly see that as, as a definite reason why these are also underreported. So there's also the problem of delays, which you write about. We're now uh, a year into the pandemic. You might think that at this point, we could perhaps look back at the data over the last year to see whether anti-Asian hate crimes have increased since, say, March 2020 in connection with a a rise in uh, racist attacks around the coronavirus pandemic. But as you point out, that data actually isn't available yet from the FBI. Why not? Well, this is the maddening thing about dealing with all crime data. It's extraordinarily slow. And the example I always give is imagine trying to evaluate the the baseball season for this year when all you've got are the numbers through June of last year or waiting until September of this year to evaluate who won the World Series last year. It's so antithetical to everything that that is happening in the 21st century. So it, it really is a, a maddening part of dealing with, with crime data. UCR, the normal crime statistics aren't released with the estimates until September, late September of the following year. The hate crime data comes a month and a half after that normally. So we're talking about mid-November when we get our first look at the underreported data. One would think that there, even just open data or all sorts of different ways that agencies can present this data, and some have, But as far as building sort of national estimates of what the trend might look like, even acknowledging that it's underreported, it's it's desperately delayed. And and one of the problems is that this is sort of the the system that the FBI has set up to report this data is they're going to wait until mid-November. And so there are a handful of agencies that are sort of entering the 21st century and are willing to report individually, like New York did that. And I had a a chart in the piece on on just looking at New York data, but those agencies are really few and far between. And oftentimes an agency will will agree to put hate data online for open data. And so they'll do, you know, they'll publish it in January, 2019 for 2016, 2017, and 2018. And then the analyst that, that was in charge will go find another job and that data will never be updated again on their open data site. You know, I, I feel like every time I talk about crime data, the the slowness of it is sort of this just added burden to the inaccuracy of it all. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan 
when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So is the New York example maybe a, a sort of model of a potential different way of doing things? Like, could looking at that, could you say, it doesn't have to be this slow, we could put it up more quickly? Or is this a situation where the reporting process is slow because what constitutes a hate crime is fuzzy, it's hard to figure out how many are reported, you know, as a, a sort of second order issue related to all the other problems that we've discussed? No, I, I think it absolutely, New York could be an example of how agencies could and should do it. New York, I'm not going to give them full credit because they do publish, I think, every six months. So we're just lucky that it's the early early in the year and we could evaluate through the end of 2020 and, and we didn't miss much of 2021. But ideally, you would want that data updating daily or monthly so that you can sort of see trends as they develop. You know, raw incident level data allows people, both you know, interested parties like myself, citizens, uh, policymakers, researchers, to see these trends as they develop. And there's very little added, in my opinion, of waiting to the end of the year and maybe they weed out a couple of hate crimes that shouldn't be in the incident level data. And, you know, that's how they report their final numbers. But I think that the, the damage is that you lose all ability to understand things as they occur. And if you can't see things as they're happening, how do you actually respond to them? Uh, other than res re responding to anecdote, there's, there's no way because you're, you're just, you have no idea what's actually happening and you have no idea if your strategies are working. And so I'm a big proponent for all crime data of open data, publish as much incident level data as you can. There's very little downside, I think, for agencies and an enormous amount of upside for agencies to have this data available to whoever might want it. So I want to talk more about what we can do to, to fix this problem. But before we do, I think it's important to bring up one of the more absurd examples that you you point to in your piece, which has to do with the, the lack of standardization around hate crime data. So you point to Arkansas, uh, which does not have a hate crime statute and where anti-white hate crimes make up 33% of hate crimes over the last 20 years, even though only 10% of all hate crimes reported to the FBI were listed as anti-white. There is a tiny little town in Arkansas of Waldron, which has a population of around 4,000, which reported almost as many anti-white hate crimes in 2003 as Los Angeles and New York City combined. So we can obviously conclude from this that Arkansas is a, a hub for anti-white violence, right? Yeah, it's what, 90% white town of 3,500 people. I mean, it's, I was looking for examples of sort of weird things that happened and was was a little bit shocked at the degree of just how, how terrible it is at, at some points. And, and the weird thing about the data for Arkansas, this, this tiny town, Waldron, Arkansas, that, that you talked about, had this 38 anti-white hate crimes in 2003 over the span of several months. Um, so it's not like there were there was one incident where you know 30 people got tagged in it with graffiti and they, they reported all at once. This was, this was clearly a reporting thing where they were reporting more of these and then it just sort of stopped and they didn't have as many 
going forward. And there was no other year. I think they had 96 hate crimes in anti-white hate crimes in Arkansas in 2003, which made up over half of all of their hate crimes that they reported that year. And so it's not that that's an extreme outlier, but I think it speaks to just how unreliable this data is. If you get a sergeant that's in charge of reporting hate crimes, who is willing to see certain things as anti-white or anti-heterosexual, any, any type of, of hate crime that they, they want to see more of these, that can lead to a dramatic increase in those hate crimes and suggest a trend. Uh, and it's especially problematic in places like Arkansas, one of three states, along with, I believe, South Carolina and Wyoming, that does not have a hate crimes law. But there's 16 states, I believe, that don't have hate crimes law that require data reporting. So it's not just in these handful of states. It, it, it's maybe more extreme there, but it's the type of thing that uh, I think at least highlights how bad this data and how unreliable this data can be. And so just to, to clarify that a little, so because... Arkansas doesn't have a hate crimes law. Does that mean that law enforcement is basically looking at an incident and saying, oh, seems like a hate crime to me because they, they don't have anything to sort of measure it against? Like how systematized can you be in the absence of a statute? Yeah, uh, that that's, that's basically what it could be. And we don't get sort of the write-ups of exactly what happened. So it's hard to say the specifics of why they, they called these, these incidents, these different incidents, a hate crime, but it could be as, as, as few as one person in the agency deciding that, that over the span of a year that he's going to call certain types of incidents, um, you know, people looking at other people funny, he's going to call those anti-white intimidations. And all of a sudden you have this incredible increase. You want agencies to participate in the hate crimes reporting process, but because there is no national standardization, it means that a tiny number of people or agencies can throw off everything. And it, it you know, again, not, not to beat a dead horse, but it just, it makes it seem so unreliable. Uh, and I'll, I'll quote the FBI here, where the, the advice that they've given to agencies is that bias is to be reported only if investigation reveals subject, sufficient objective facts to lead a reasonable and prudent person to conclude that the offender's actions were motivated in whole or in part by bias. I mean, that's enormous. You you could see what they're trying to get at in terms of what they want agencies to report, but you can also see just how bad things can get if a single person decides uh, that they're being reasonable and prudent and that uh, a person was, uh, you know, spitting in an officer's direction and that's uh, anti-police bias. Uh, that that's basically how it works. All right. So you've sketched what I think is a, a pretty grim picture about the, the flaws in hate crime data. How, in your view, could we go about fixing the problem? Oh boy. That, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the billion dollar consulting question, isn't it? I mean, it, to some degree, I don't know that you're ever going to be able to totally fix it just because you're going to have underreporting. It's, the nature of the crimes mean that you're going to have underreporting. I think better standardization would be good. And I think that the, the open data is a key component to that, where agencies or the FBI, and this is a, it's a key component to all crime reporting, I think, but we need 
hundreds or thousands of agencies that produce open data and so that they're publishing their hate crimes data regularly. And I think that would maybe help provide some trends and some better understanding of what does and doesn't constitute a hate crime. But, you know, I hate to get even grimmer, but I, I don't know that there's a solution for how you get agencies on board that just don't want to report hate crimes. And the FBI touts 15,000 agencies in 2019, 15,588 law enforcement agencies participating in the program. But according to the Anti-Defamation League, 86% of them didn't report a single hate crime. And given that the, the definitions of hate crimes is, is pretty large, you would expect some sort of hate crime over 365 days to occur in virtually every agency across the country. And I, I don't know, other than education and standardizing what is and what is not a hate crime, I don't know what you do to get agencies that aren't willing to see them to report hate crimes. Yeah, so that that gets to something I was thinking about while reading our piece about just the the sheer size of the country. So as you've kind of hinted, a lot of the problems that we're seeing here are seem to really stem from the localized nature of U.S. law enforcement. And given just how big the United States is, the amount of law enforcement organizations at various levels of government, the various definitions of what constitutes a hate crime, like to what extent is this disordered data just kind of a result of American federalism? It's very much a result of kind of the way that the FBI collects data for all types of of crime and criminal justice issues. They very much do it slowly, where individual agencies collect the data, tally up the numbers, they send it to the FBI. The FBI spends nine to 11 months tallying everything up so that they have a final number in an interesting fashion. And I think that it creates a system where we put an over-reliance on the bottom line numbers, which we already know are wrong, and less of a interest in trying to evaluate trends, trying to get data quickly so that we can determine whether or not programs or policies are working. I, I don't know how, you know, doing crime data, I don't, as much as I do, I don't really look at other types of, of federal data reporting, but you can just look at COVID data and see how effective and fast agencies are get that data out to the people. I mean, every day, every every state is reporting data pretty much. And that's coming from, you know, thousands upon thousands of hospitals and and labs and everything reporting. And it's not perfect, but it enables us to see trends and to respond to what is a major issue. And we don't have a data collection system set up to handle crime data and hate crimes data like that. And so I think it goes back more to just sort of the standard way that FBI has been collecting data on crimes back to 1929. And they, when the uh, initial hate crimes law uh, was passed in 1991, I believe it was, all it did is say, you know, hey, attorney general, I want you to collect data on this. And so that, that the FBI just sort of plugged it into to their normal collection system. And the, the best example of how messed up the, the national data collection system is is that we don't collect data on shootings. We collect data on aggravated assaults where a firearm is used. So if 
you beat me over the head with a firearm, that's an aggravated assault with a firearm. If you shoot and you miss me, that's an aggravated assault with a firearm. If you shoot and you hit me in the, the neck, but you just don't kill me, that's an aggravated assault with a firearm. And so we have this incredibly large gun violence problem in the United States, but we don't actually collect data on it. And I think that that methodology just sort of lends itself to exactly how we do hate crime data. In terms of improving the data, there are a few proposals that are already on the table. Uh, So President Biden signed a memorandum recently requiring the attorney general to, and I quote, explore opportunities to expand collection of data and public reporting regarding hate incidents against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. In March, Congress introduced the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which calls on the Justice Department to improve hate crimes reporting. To what extent would those proposals help address the problem in your view? I guess it depends on on what steps they take. I think there's probably steps you can take to encourage reporting at the community level. And I would imagine that that more attention to the issue will hopefully take some of the stigma out of it. And so people that maybe are the victim of hate crimes in the Asian community and, and you know, victimized communities throughout the country uh, may be more willing to report if the federal government and local agencies are encouraging reporting. That I think will be good. Just if you, if you have more agencies reporting, ironically, it's a good thing in hate crimes. From a data collection standpoint, from the mechanisms, there's no inherent improvement there. Obviously, there are ways to improve it. And I I keep talking about open data because it's just such an easy and obvious solution. The police data initiative started in 2014 under the Obama administration. And that's where a lot of agencies were sort of introduced to policing open data and crime and, and, and all sorts of criminal justice open data. And it kind of went away under the Trump administration. So if you were to re-implement that kind of concept, I think that I could see a world in which that leads to much better open data. And so the, the Biden administration can certainly be a advocate for that and can help to get funding and training and get that off the ground, just as the Obama administration did. But I don't think that the legislation that's been passed necessarily means that that's going to happen. It, I guess it, it remains to be seen. So we do have some data from academics and advocacy groups that has been reported on recently that seems to show a rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. So the there's a group called Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate, for example, that has data showing, I think, about 3,000 hate crimes over the last year. There have been academic studies as well. To what extent can that data help fill the gap here? Or should we think of it as sort of an apples and oranges comparison that, you know, this is useful, but it's not the same thing or it doesn't play the same role as federal government data? And if that's the case, how should we understand what kind of role data from these organizations is playing? It's really hard, I think, to put that data in context. You know, one of the examples they give is that someone was, I believe, at a grocery store, was at a restaurant, and like everyone got up and moved to another table. And that, I I see the hate, I see the, the racism in there, but I don't inherently see the crime in there. And so I think that that sort of 
doesn't help in terms of the need for standardized reporting. I think that any anything that shines a light on how badly underreported these crimes are, and and I know that the the Stop Hate report talks about how the 3,800 number is almost certainly an, an underreporting itself, and I certainly buy that. But I don't necessarily know that it helps to just put a number on it. Um, I think that that's kind of the same problem that I have with the FBI data when what we really care about is understanding just how underreported it is and understanding the trend. The New York data that we have shows that there was a surge in anti-Asian hate crimes per month in March, and then they were elevated a, a little bit over previous years throughout the rest of the year. But if you're talking about 3,800 anti-Asian hate crimes and all of them happened in March 2020, it doesn't necessarily help us understand what the trend is right now. And so I don't know ultimately how much it adds to have more people reporting different standardized hate crime data that doesn't, doesn't inherently answer the question of what's going on now and what can we do to fix it. But I would say it, it, it's helpful to know, to have have more data on just how underreported it is, and especially on the anti-Asian hate crimes, which we know are are even more underreported than normal. So to close, I want to focus in a little on what better data could do. It seems pretty obvious that, you know, if, if you don't have good data on something, it's hard to tell what's going on. <laughs> but say if we could somehow improve hate crimes data, or if we somehow had better data that showed us what exactly seems to be happening in terms of trends with anti-Asian violence. What kind of policy responses could that enable that we're not able to do now? Like, how is the lack of data limiting our response in your view? Well, I, I think that it makes it hard to contextualize what it is. It means that um, I don't know that it would inherently change what the policy responses would be, but it would help make the policy responses stronger because you would have the the data behind you to know that it's happening when it's happening. I think when you rely on kind of the anecdote or waiting on the truly horrific crime to happen and then you do the policies, you've sort of missed the opportunity there. And I think that having that data to see the trend on its way up is more helpful than waiting for uh, to see the trend on the way down in terms of when you can do your policy responses. And obviously I, I'm not a, an expert in policy response to hate crimes. The other thing that I think would be very useful with better data though, is to not just have New York City's data or because we always focus on New York or Chicago. It would be really interesting to see what's happening in smaller Asian communities throughout the country. Uh, is this something that's happening in places that, don't, that we don't capture in our, our traditional hate crime data? If you had good hate crime data that could point it out and could identify those locations as those trends are developing, those communities then could develop their own responses. And so I, I definitely think that having better hate crime data could only lead to sharper and more targeted responses. And that the way we have things set up, we just sort of wait around until the, the water boils enough and we feel like a response is needed. All right. That is all the time we have. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank. And our producer is Jen Howell. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.